Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Rian Esler, who is a system scientist and cultural historian whose research focuses on how to construct a more equitable and less violent world based on partnership rather than domination. She is president of the Center for Partnership Studies and editor-in-chief of the Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Studies. She has written many books applying her research to evolution, religion, education, sexuality, economics, and politics, including uh, Nurturing Our Humanity. Welcome, Rian. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, um, Nurturing Our Humanity, uh, could you talk a bit about what led you to, uh, to, to write the book? And then um, I would love to get deeper into the content of the book. Well, it uh, is, as you know, the most recent book that I've written. Um, It was published by Oxford University Press uh, just some months ago. And it uh, has a great deal of both biological and social science uh, that basically supports the findings of my research over a period of several decades. Um, And that research, as you said in your introduction, is to identify what we have to build and what we have to understand in order to build not an ideal society, but a more equitable and less violent one. And, And in terms of my own life, Uh, the impetus for this came out of my own childhood as a child refugee with my parents from uh, what was a massive regression to the domination side of what I call the partnership domination scale, the rise to power of the Nazis first in Germany and then in my native Austria. And having to flee from that um, led me to questions about why, when we humans have such a capacity for caring 
uh, for empathy, for creativity. Why has there been so much cruelty, so much inequity, so much violence? And are there alternatives? In my work, uh, the answer was a resounding yes, there are alternatives, but we can't see them uh, looking through the conventional uh, worldviews, the conventional lenses we have been taught. Okay, okay. So when I read through the chapters, uh, Rianne, you know, I, I thought of organizing them in my mind, at least. Uh, really arguments around <laughs> coming from engineering, I would think about the hardware, the operating system, and the software and the apps that you put on it. So I'm, I'm talking about human beings now. And you have some hypotheses uh, or ideas around, let's start with the hardware. Um, you know, generally, uh, as you say, in many areas, we think about uh, 50,000 years of human evolution, um, homo sapien evolution. Um, you know, we know that we started off in a, in a clan-like system, um, generally, you know, less than 100 people in, in those clans. And they fought with other clans uh, for survival and for food and for other things. So the picture that we have in our mind of our, um, you know, really old ancestry is, is one of fighting and violence, right? Um, so, so how is it, from, from your perspective, why doesn't that fit with, uh, with what you see today? Well, first of all, that is a false story. Yeah. And there is a great deal of evidence in nurturing our humanity and in earlier books, like my book, The Chalice and the Blade, which is now in 57 U.S. printings and 27 foreign editions, that uh, the evidence does not support this. It is based on an assumption. Uh, yeah. The reality, and I should tell you that I worked uh, for seven years, because it takes me a long time to write my books, uh, doing the research for nurturing our humanity. And then I invited anthropologist Douglas Fry to join me uh, yeah. at that point, because he is probably the world's leading expert on foraging societies. And what we today know, uh, not only from anthropology, but from archaeology, even from uh some of the DNA studies, which uh, are, are actually discussed in uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, uh, that uh, the picture that we have been given, you know, the caveman cartoon, right? You know, mm -hmm. and in one hand, he's holding a club, a weapon. With the other one, he's dragging a woman by the hair. You know, that violence, inequality, uh, injustice, male dominance, that that's just how it's always been. By definition, it always will be. It is not true. The data is compelling that a warfare uh, didn't even start uh, until about 10,000 years ago, 10 to 5,000 years ago. And for millennia, I mean, really millions of years, uh, when we lived as foragers, uh, there was no warfare, but it, was, it came in with what I call a domination rather than a partnership configuration. 
Okay. Uh, that that sort of fits from, you know, kind of a post-agriculture, let's say 10,000 years ago. Uh, but there is evidence that, you know, Homo sapiens migrated out of Africa uh, and they basically wiped out, uh, as you know, the Neanderthals and uh, the Denisovans. And so I think if you sort of rewind time back to 50,000, 100,000 years ago, I think there is evidence that Homo sapiens were not a very peaceful, <laughs> peaceful community. Well, that is conjecture yeah. solely because we simply don't know why certain uh, branches of the uh, uh, hominid tree disappeared. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're assuming that they were killed, but there's an awful lot of evidence for in DNA, for example, uh, that we actually carry uh, in current DNA, some Neanderthal uh, Yeah, about genes. 4%, I think. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, we really, we really uh, can only deal with what we have. And we have the evidence from archaeology, uh, destruction through warfare, very recent. Uh, we have the evidence of contemporary foraging societies, which are not fighting with each other uh, for, quote, uh, survival or land or anything like that. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that we have to take a step back. And if we really look at neuroscience, yes. it's very interesting what we are today learning about what you uh, call the hardware. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Of our brains and how actually the notion that we are, quote, wired uh, for <laughs> violence, for injustice, for a domination is, again, a false story that, if anything, um, we have an enormous capacity for caring, for empathy, you know, as Franz de Waal wrote, you know, nature wouldn't have gotten into the empathy business if there wasn't a reason for it, right? <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, the evidence is, is huge now, but it takes a while for the academic paradigm to shift. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. So I don't know much about this, and I'm just conjecturing here. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't think we are wired for violence, but more simplistically, if you take, if you if you think about, you know, what's objective function of an animal, uh, it tends to have, you know, energies, you know, food, and then, you know, the need to propagate its genes. And unless we are saying humans are substantially different from animals, their objective functions are much more sophisticated uh, I wondered, you know, uh, whether we, we are basically carrying fairly simple objective functions in our brain. Well, look, first of all, most uh, species do not kill members of their own species. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, yeah, we have a food chain and we humans kill other species to eat, to survive. But to jump from that to in 
inter-species, intra-species violence is quite a jump, isn't it? And, you know, look, so much... Let, let me let me tell you a little bit of the evidence from neuroscience. Yeah. Because I think that that speaks louder than going back and forth here. Uh, for example, studies have shown that uh, in in the so-called pleasure centers of our brains, they light up more when we share and care than when we win and dominate. I mean, that is just a fact from scientific findings. Moreover, we also have studies, which again are reported in Nurturing Our Humanity, showing that actually we are happier when we give then when we receive, uh, we let's let's back up a minute because there is something very yeah. interesting about the human brain that we have to first talk about. We've been taught that there's this nurture versus nature battle. It's a false. It's a red herring. Okay. It, the, the, the real issue is not genes, it is gene expression. And we know today from neuroscience that we are, of course, born uh, with a not fully, by, by long shot, not fully developed brain. Uh, and that how our brain develops, the actual architecture of our brains is a function of the interaction of our genes with our experiences starting early on with about 85% of the structure of the brain laid in the first five years. So for humans, right. um, if I may continue, uh, the yeah. most important environment, especially at this stage, is not our natural environment. It is our social, cultural environment, both physical right. and institutional, you know, families, education, religion, politics, economics. So what we are learning, and, and there's really an explosion of knowledge now, for example, the ACES studies, the Adverse Childhood Experiences studies, show the hmm. tremendous damage that adverse early childhood experiences cause, uh, not uh, only uh, you know, in the United States now, the ACEs studies were done in the United States, where we don't culturally accept genital mutilation or child marriage or uh, the, the child labor or the enormous, uh, <coughs> excuse me, violence that is now has been, thanks to the women's rights and children's rights movement, uh, is now well documented the pandemic of violence against women and children in families. And even here, the incidence of adverse childhood experiences are huge. And the results, both in terms of bodily pathologies, illnesses, and psychologic, psychological problems, are huge. So a whole new picture is emerging. And we even know that 
For example, I'll give you another example. Uh, there is a gene that has been associated in men with violence. However, whether that gene has really going to express itself or not is not universal. Studies show that it only expresses itself in men who have such adverse childhood experiences. So, so that is what I would call sort of operating system. So I think what you're arguing, Rian, if I understand this correctly, is that there is nothing really systematically wrong with the hardware. There is nothing really systematically wired in the brain of humans. And what they're going to become is a function of the environment they're going to be in and more, more broadly, the culture that they grow up in. And so, so you know, it's, it's a bit like you, you have a, you know, brand new computer and the operating system that you put on it is going to sort of shape you as to what you're going to do. And that makes a lot of sense. I've done some work in, in large companies. I wrote a book in 2009 called Flexibility. And I argued something quite similar, that you can take a, a company and uh, how that company behaves uh, you know, the culture of that company emanates from its leadership, how it's structured, what type of systems it might have. And so it is not something that you can very easily replicate once a company is in a state, right, uh, for, a, for a long period of time. So I think what you're arguing is in the first five, 10 years of an individual's life, it's a very critical time that that basically sets that individual on a path one way or the other based on the environment that individual is Absolutely. going to be in, right? And what we have been, I mean, to really uh, jump straight into uh, the uh, fact that what this requires is new thinking. What we have been taught yeah. as culturally important has really marginalized or completely ignored the majority of humanity, women and children. So, uh, for example, uh, modern Western science is about 600 years old, came out of a clerical, monastic, celibate culture. As the historian of science, uh, David Noble, wrote, a world without women, and I would add, also a world without children. So it wasn't until about mm. 50 years ago that we even had women's studies, men's studies, gender studies, <laughs> queer studies, still completely marginalized. Uh, as for what we know about child development, brain development, human capacity development, that is marginalized too. It's in an occasional psychology or neuroscience course. It should be part of sociology, uh, it should be part of political science, of economics, because we have a right. gendered system of values in which anything, uh, well, as I just illustrated, associated with women is considered less important than anything in domination systems, stereotypically associated mm. with men. This has nothing to do with women against men or men against women. It's rigid gender stereotypes, which basically inhibit the full humanity of both women and men, 
with men getting contempt and anger as the only appropriate masculine emotions for dominating. And women get the soft, so-called uh, feminine uh, emotions of empathy, of caring, of caregiving, and it's a mess. So we really have to start thinking in completely different ways. And what has distinguished my work has been that I draw from a database that includes the whole of humanity, both its female and male forms, the whole of our lives, including where we all live in our family and other intimate relations. And yes, the whole of our history, including that long period of time we call prehistory. And a very different picture of human possibilities. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, the the area that I grew up in South India uh, used to be hundreds of years ago um, was women uh, had more power than men. And the wealth actually uh, wealth of a family went with women, not men. Uh, and generally women made many of the decisions uh, in the home as well. So we, I'm talking about hundreds of years ago. Um, and this sort of, uh, you know, sort of confirms, uh, I would say, your hypothesis that it is flipped now. It's just like any other part of the world today. <laughs> there are no signs of that there anymore. Um, but it has some, you know, other indications that it has 100% literacy and, and uh, yeah, some metrics that are very unusual for a developing country. Um, but but I think one of the one of the things that you talked about is that if you look back in time, we can find cultures who have been much more advanced than uh, what we see on a contemporary basis. Well, I right? think that um, first of all, when you say women had more power, I, I think you're talking about Kerala, are you? Yes, uh, yeah. that I would yeah. dispute because we're so used to women having no power. <laughs> that when women have some power, yeah. you know, it's it's already a big deal. I uh, do not think that matriarchy and patriarchy are our only alternatives. I see them as two sides of a yeah. domination coin. That's why I write of a partnership mm. system. And it's interesting that even our okay. language, when it comes to gender, only gives us those two. You know, you either dominate or you're dominated. That is not true. And the most successful intimate mm. relations, as well as international relations, have been more orienting yeah. <clears throat> to mutual respect, mutual accountability, mutual benefit. Uh, so it's not just working together, by the way, that I mean by partnership, because people can work together, you know, oil cartels, gangs, terrorists, they all work together. It is that configuration yeah. in which, yes, starting with the difference between the female and male forms of humanity, difference is not equated with superiority or inferiority, yeah. dominating or being dominated, being served or served. serving. It's the in-group versus out-group thinking that that template you know, whether it's Shia versus Sunni or Sunni versus Shia in the Middle East 
or racism in the United States or yeah. the caste system in India, which, by the way, was brought in by the Indo-European invaders. I mean, it's very interesting. We're a whole new picture of human possibilities. And that's very important because if we think it's impossible, why bother, right? Right. Yeah, so that's a distinction, right? Uh, as you say, it's a distinction between domination systems and partnership systems. And th th this, this makes intuitive sense because collaboration, the ability to collaborate uh, should have had um, selection advantages very early on because you could not really have survived without partnership, without collaboration. And so, and so that trait, that skill would have survived but then again, in a modern context, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're arguing is that when you look around, maybe there are a few examples of this in Scandinavia and elsewhere, uh, we largely see just domination systems. Well, we see a mix. I mean, we see, yeah. if you look at modern history, modern Western history in particular, you see that all the modern progressive movements have challenged the same thing, a tradition of domination, hmm. whether it was the Enlightenment challenging the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule, or the feminist and then the women's rights movements challenging the, again, so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children, uh, whether it was the abolitionist, the anti-colonial, the, the civil rights or the Black Lives Matter movement challenging another so-called divinely ordained uh, right, you know, of, of a quote, <laughs> superior race, all the way yeah. to the environmental movement challenging our once hallowed conquest of nature, which at our level of technology yeah. could really destroy our species. But, and this is the point I'm going to really emphasize, these movements have focused primarily yeah. because of what we've been taught is, quote, important on dismantling the top, hmm. what I call the top of the domination pyramid, politics and economics as conventionally hmm. defined. And they've left in place the foundations, which, of course, include our family, gender, childhood, uh, economics very differently defined and stories and language. And so we've had regression after regression. And uh, I consider religious fundamentalism not religious, but domination fundamentalism, uh, whether it's Eastern or Western, right. Northern or Southern, in the same way, whether it was uh, Stalin in the former Soviet Union or Hitler in Nazi Germany, uh, you know, we're talking about domination systems that transcend the old fragmenting ways we've been taught to think of societies. And that's why it is so important that we have a unified conceptual framework. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's intriguing about, uh, about it is that it doesn't really have good economic sense, right? So we can, again, look into companies in a micro way and, and clearly demonstrate that companies that are uh, architected like a pyramid, you know, with all the sea level X exiting and 10th floor um, and go directly to the parking lot uh, to get out of the building, uh, don't actually create very high shareholder value. They actually fail uh, over time. 
And so, so you can see behaviors that are, let's call it domination systems driven, don't actually work in companies. And, and data should tell us that it doesn't work in countries you know, or societies. You, you would love my book, and, The yeah. Real Wealth of Nations, because uh, I show <laughs> again and again in that book that, uh, yes, partnership pays, caring pays. You know that there are studies uh, reported in that book, by the way, showing that companies that regularly appear in the Fortune 500 or the working mothers, best companies to work for. In other words, companies that care for not only their customers, but also their employees, their communities, they have a higher return to investors. Now, I'm not saying that, right. I mean, I think we need different charters for corporations so that shareholder value is not the end all. And we certainly have to get rid of the short-term thinking of the, my God, I mean, that, that quarterly report is a disaster. But, but it requires <laughs> new thinking and it requires, what we need is what we haven't had, which is an economic system that is driven by caring for people, start childhood and caring for nature. And we have, by the way, and I want to tell you about and tell our listeners, the Center for Partnership Studies, which was founded as a, because we yeah. didn't know with the grassroots response, we didn't know what to do with the grassroots response to the Charles and the Blade, which was the first book, you know, reporting these findings. Uh, we developed what, a new metric, social wealth economic indicators, which show the economic return from investing in caring for people starting in childhood and caring for nature. And, and, and today, in our post-industrial era, when we're told that the most important capital is what economists like to call high-quality human capital, flexible, creative people who can work in team, teams, who can, uh, you know, adapt and, and, and go with change that we know from neuroscience, again, we're back to nurturing our humanity, that whether or not that kind of human capacity, human capital, I, I, I don't like to think of people as capital, but human capacity does or does not develop largely hinges on the quality of care and education children receive early on. So from a strictly financial standpoint, okay, caring economics mm. of partnerism makes sense. Right, yeah, so th that is important, right? So having an economic framework is important and we have, we have good examples of it, not scaled up examples, you know, uh, Finland uh, is always on top of sort of the human development scale and, and, and seem to have, you know, very different metrics. Uh, they, they're always on top of education, always on top of healthcare. So we have some very good examples uh, of how you could re-engineer these systems, but we haven't been able to do that at scale anywhere. So many of the large countries that we have, large quote-unquote democracies uh, around the world, 
um, increasingly moving in the other direction, actually, uh, becoming classic domination systems in your, in, well, in your uh, jargon. I, right? I would say and that so, there is yeah, a struggle because many Northern European nations are moving in that direction and they are large countries. Germany, for example, is moving in that direction. But of course, uh, if you're talking about China, uh, you have a domination regime. But I want to go back to Finland for a moment because Finland is not socialist. Yeah. They have a very healthy market economy, as you know. And it's not because they're homogeneous yeah. or relatively so because there are a lot of relatively homogeneous countries that are very domination and very uncaring oriented. Uh, but one of the distinguishing yeah. Yeah. things about these nations that pioneered caring policies, universal health care, uh, universal child, high quality child care, elder care with dignity, very generous paid parental leave, they have much more gender equity. Women are 40 to 50% of the national legislature. And as the status of women rises, men no longer find it such a threat to their status, to their identity, you know, masculinity, to also embrace more soft, caring values. So both men and women have voted for these. We can, this is not a matter of scale. This is a matter of culture. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, so I want to go into, you know, sort of what I would call new applications, right? And, and you have four different cornerstones of, of starting to think about how would you sort of redesign this? And the first one is childhood relations. Well, as uh, I said, uh, we know today uh, that what happens, what children observe and experience directly impacts how their brains develop. So, and we also know from the ACES studies, from the American Psychological Association, from hundreds of, 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 of experts on child development, that the so-called traditional, which really isn't that traditional, but, you know, the dominator child rearing based where, where caring is conflated with coercion, okay, and with fear, that that really inhibits our human development, okay? So yes, we have to really pay attention to the pandemic of violence against children, uh, that we're just beginning to get a sense of how bad it is. It has to stop. But more than that, uh, again, you were talking about the Nordic nations. Sweden and the first laws making physical discipline against children uh, against the law. That's part of the partnership configuration, leaving behind traditions of violence and fear, right? And 50 nations have now adopted this, at least in their book, okay? Uh, we have to really, that is vital. And we, we have the knowledge, so now let's use it. Right, right. And, and again, you know, you can put an economic framework around that, uh, which is if you don't do that in the first 10, 15 years of a child, um, the, the divergence that you see in the economic output 
uh, of that person is significant. So, you know, um, it might it might seem uh, insensitive to think about economics here, but uh, you know, from a policy perspective, uh, what I'm suggesting is that it's actually a no-brainer. You don't necessarily need to buy any normative argument. Absolutely, you can and look at uh, the numbers, look, right? I always I've been called a practical visionary. I'm very very aware of the importance of economics. But I want us to stop arguing about capitalism versus socialism because both carry a lot of domination elements and have nothing in them, by the way, about the importance of caring for people starting in childhood or about caring for nature. We need a new caring economics of partnerism. But you were talking about costs. It isn't just the lost potential. It's the enormous social costs. I mean, crime, uh, Mm. delinquency, uh, suicide. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, it's sort of, you get a negative outcome or a positive outcome. It's not like you're not going to get anything or a positive outcome, right? That negative outcome could be quite significant from a social perspective. And so investments that countries need to make in in changing things uh, in that arena, I think is, is, uh, is extremely important. The second cornerstone you have is gender relations. We talked a little bit about it. Well, already, yes, because to, we have a a inherited a gendered system of values. Uh, I mean, if you really think about it yeah. somehow, there always seems to be enough funding for prisons, right? Well, what's that? That's the domination stereotype <laughs> of the punitive male head of household, right? Uh, or weapons yes. and, 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 and wars. Well, that's another domination stereotype, the hero as warrior, as killer. But somehow we don't have enough money for the soft the so-called feminine for health care, child care, uh, paid parental leave. I mean, even though the data is so clear, we know, as you have emphasized so much here, Gil, how cost-effective this is. So we really have to change people's mindsets, their worldviews, and we have to unpack this gendered system of values. Stop saying we should be nicer. That's very good. But, you know, as long as men uh, who are sensitive, who are caring, are, are viewed as sissies, right, as weak sisters, uh, we've got a mess. And, you know, I, I was just one thing. I mean, yeah, and- let's take account yeah. of the fact that it's really silly to talk about poverty in generalities when because largely, not just job discrimination, but because of this gendered system of values, women and children are the mass of the world's poor and the poorest of the poor. I mean, let's be real here. Yeah, yeah. And you know, what's interesting also is that there are a lot of micro experiments. There is data out there. So you can, again, look at companies uh, that have gender equality and, and, and not, uh, both in pay as well as other aspects of the company. 
and you can you can see the performance of these companies right um you know any time you exclude a group of people whether it is based on gender or race or whatever you are well, and that's as i said only part of the story because there's also the the issue of what values yeah. guide economic policy and they're gendered they, they are gendered and in in some sense um because they are they they have been around for a long time um organizations are sort of set in their ways right so changing that well, is absolutely is people don't like to <laughs> be seen, out yes. of their comfort zones but let's face it we're living in a world that is screaming at us get out of your comfort zones look at reality stop being in denial and you know unfortunately we're back to childhood uh we have evidence now that this this very rigid uh authoritarian uh male dominated highly punitive family actually uh in many people not in everyone thank goodness uh has an effect on the brain itself so that people from these kinds of backgrounds the part of the brain that helps us shift with change is not as capable uh, so that would account a great deal for the prevalence of of well of climate change denial for one thing but also for this blindness <laughs> that we have that we seem to think it's normal it's okay to ignore the majority of humanity women and children which is really nuts <laughs> right right yeah and and the third cornerstone here uh, you say economically well look in um, my book yeah, the real wealth of nations and again uh as one of the four cornerstones uh, that i propose in nurturing our humanity uh we have to pay attention to economics domination the issue isn't capitalism it is domination economics whether it was chinese emperors whether it was uh middle eastern uh shahs or 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 more or, or recently US right temporary. well the trickle more what is trickle down economics it's a, a replay of feudal economics isn't it where the people on bottom are to content themselves with the scraps <laughs> dropping from the opulent tables from those on top it's domination economics it doesn't have to be that way we need enlightened caring business corporate charters business policies as well as government policies in uh, the covid-19 pandemic has shown how fragile how lack of resiliency our current systems have and they've also showed it's also showed something else that our essential workers what are they people who care healthcare workers childcare workers people who uh could provide food so that we can you know survive we need new thinking and this is what this work has been continues to be about which takes us to the fourth cornerstone of course and stories yes yeah, yeah so narratives and language because you know i think that if you really think about it whether it's original sin or selfish genes it's the same story isn't it 
we're bad, we need to be rigidly controlled from the top, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, it's so ingrained. Right, we right. need, well, the new story of human possibilities told in Nurturing Our Humanity, which is, I mean, this is not the only book talking about this. That's the good part. But as I said, it takes a long time for the academy to move and for the mainstream uh, conversation to change, uh, but also language. You know, linguistic psychologists have long told us that the categories provided by a culture's language, and this is especially true of social categories, they channel our thinking so yeah. that it's almost impossible, very difficult yeah. to see other alternatives. And the categories that we've inherited, right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, you know, think about it. There have been regressive, oppressive, violent regimes in every one of these categories. So if we're trying to figure out, you know, what, what will support a different way of living and making a living, they aren't going to tell us. Moreover, they either marginalize or ignore the majority of humanity, women and children. So the, a, a colleague of mine calls these conventional categories that we're so used to weapons of mass distraction. Well, they fragment our consciousness, don't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, um, it's, it's more problematic in some ways. I'll, I'll uh, make a statement and you can tell me if you agree with it. And that is, there was some general feeling that things are improving, things were improving. Uh, but if you look at last four years, for example, all around the world, um, you can clearly see a negative trend in many of the dimensions that we talked about today. And because these systems are very complex systems, um, you know, it's, it's a bit like uh, turning a, you know, aircraft carrier around, you know, it takes time <laughs> once it goes in a wrong direction and you say you have to make a 180 degree turn here, um, that's going to take a long time. So there, there are, some, you know, kind of real uh, tactical Well, I look at it from the perspective of that the struggle for our future is not between right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, etc., but within all of these types of societies, between the partnership and the domination elements. And yeah. I think that what we have been seeing is a regression to the domination side. Undoubtedly, that's been there. But if we build those four cornerstones, we can avoid these regressions. And so we need to continue to do the short-term work. I mean, yes, you know, get governments to stop subsidizing fossil fuels, for goodness sakes. You know, I mean, this is lunatic. But at the same time, we also need the longer term work. And this is why we so desperately need a unified conceptual framework of this partnership domination scale. Because there are many trends towards partnership, even in the midst of the regression. I mean, for example, we 
we never heard so much about gender, about sexual harassment as we have today, but it is still not recognized that this is part of a, it's sort of the tip of the iceberg, right? Of one of the main elements of domination systems, that it isn't quote, just a women's issue, that it's a cultural issue. And that, that can happen. You know, people tell me uh, when they read my books that they have these aha moments where suddenly, you know, something shifts. And I, and I had that too as I was doing the research mm. for, for this work and continue to have it, where things that seem random and disconnected suddenly make sense. So we can do it. We can do it. Right. And yeah. whoever said it's it would a... be easy. But it's possible. Right. Yeah, you know, it's a bit like the system has a disease and we are sort of fooling around uh, on the margin with uh, treating symptoms. And that alone won't do it. Um, you, need to, you need to have more fundamental change. And the question remains to be whether we have mechanisms that would do that, right? There aren't sufficient incentives in the systems for them to change. Uh, and so, and so, you know, it's unclear to me what mechanisms will ultimately. Well, the reward system, uh, and especially the, the economic reward system, can be changed. You know, look, social systems, economic systems, they're human creations. We can recreate them, and there are beginning to be more and more people. Uh, and, and certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has helped to show this, who are seeing uh, what, what we've been talking about, the need for fundamental change, s- starting really with these four cornerstones of childhood, gender, economics, but a different economics than this pointless argument between capitalism and socialism, uh, and story and language. Um, you know, I think that I believe in human creativity. Just about everything that surrounds us, whether it's the computers we're looking at or the mic we're talking into, or whether it's the belief system, they're human creations. So we can create something better. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to say, uh, we in the 60s, we confused rebellion with reconstruction. And the virtue of what we're talking Mm. about is that it offers, well, in the words of uh, the Nobel uh, Peace Laureate, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, this work offers a template for the better world we so want and need. Mm. Right. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, this has oh, been I've enjoyed great, talking uh, with you. Uh, I'd so love to have you use me. your creativity and, uh, and your experience to work on exactly what you talked about, <laughs> changing the incentives, the reward system. And this is why we have these new metrics, by the way. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'll try, uh, Rianne. Meanwhile, uh, well, yes, we have. California, you are getting um, hit with but, all sorts of um, things. Um, you know, I, I never thought 
we would have six months of isolation, my husband and I, but here we are. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking with you. <laughs> Bill, Thanks so and much. I thank you. Okay. Thank you.